This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Katrina Sedgwick, and I'm the director and director and CEO of ACME. And um, to start off, I'd just like to acknowledge that we meet here today on the lands uh, of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, we're really thrilled to have you all here today and have our esteemed panel here today. Uh, we've got a fantastic partnership this year with the Melbourne Festival. I think probably the richest partnership actually that ACME's had uh, in our history with the Melbourne Festival. Uh, jointly presenting two really thrilling works uh, for the festival. Uh, Collisions, uh, which opened on Thursday, which is a 17-minute virtual reality film uh, made by artist Lynette Woolworth, uh, who's part of today's panel, uh, which invites audiences to uh, in begin a journey with uh, Madhu Elder uh, Nyeri Nyeri Morgan and the Matu tribe and his uh, astonishing story uh, in the uh, remote Western Australian desert. Um, this virtual reality experience invites you into his world now but tells the story of his very first uh, collision and contact with uh, the Western world uh, as he was walking through the lands in Maralinga and witnessed with no context or warning whatsoever an atomic blast. And he's now worked with Alanette Woolworth to tell his story through uh, another incredible uh, piece of Western science being virtual reality and it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, the second uh, partnership we have with the Melbourne Festival is to present uh, the extraordinary uh, uh, Los Sentidos uh, production of Echo in the Shadow. Um, this uh, Barcelona-based company has been doing incredible immersive theatrical works for many, many years and Jonathan Holloway has been a huge, huge fan and supporter of their work and we're thrilled that you invited us to, to partner and, and present this work in, in our Gallery One. It's the first time uh, a theatrical work of this scale has been presented at ACME and um, we, we're really thrilled uh, that it's the Echo of the Shadow. Um, Jonathan Holloway is going to lead a panel uh, discussion today that explores uh, the work of these two very different artists who both engage in utterly immersive experiences for their audiences through a range of different media and mediums. Um, so I'd now like to hand over to Melbourne Festival Director Jonathan Holloway to lead the conversation. Thank you, Katrina, and thank you, everyone. And um, I'd also like to acknowledge that we are meeting on the land of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. And um, the great thing about festivals is that you, ah, the great thing about microphones is if you speak into them, uh, they make you louder. Uh, so uh, the, um, the great thing about uh, festivals is that you get to put into action that which is often words. So we, we say that we pay our respect, but there's nothing like uh, having Rico Rennie design a tram that says always was, always will be, and having a 22-ton tram uh, roll around the city for six months saying it. So it's, it's great to really actually so put your money where your mouth is. Um, and uh, also thrilled about the diversity of work that one can present in a festival across all art forms uh, with several uniting factors, one of them being you get to work with the most astonishing artists. And uh, today, I couldn't be uh, prouder than I am sat here uh, with these two. Um, Lynette Walworth is one of Australia's leading artists, but also one of the world's leading artists in terms of creating immersive experience through photography, video, and interactive technology. Her work, uh, Vessel Hold, was the one of the first commissions, uh, in fact, the first commission, I think, for ACME uh, back in 2001, and was also uh, the first work uh, that she made, that you made, that had uh, a combination of, of video and interaction and as an immersive environment, um, beginning to explore nature, uh, which obviously continued very strongly with, with Coral, with uh, the most 
beautiful uh, filmic work and soundtrack and immersive environment set in uh, a geodesic dome. Is it geodesic dome? Is that the right word? It's a full, it's a full dome. Full dome. Yeah. Full is an easier word to say than geodesic. Why? Why? Why didn't I take the, tr the road? Easier. I'm also working now today in honour of this between a, a, a tablet and a piece of paper, so it uh, absolutely unifies both worlds. Um, and the work has been seen at the Lincoln Centre, uh, it's been seen at the Vienna Festival, uh, her work's been seen all around the world, and we are thrilled that Collisions is, is here starting in the festival and running on until uh, January the 15th. And telling that story, which I can't think of any other way one could possibly tell a story or communicate a sense of land and a sense uh, of... Can I have a quick uh, show of hands? How many people have seen Collisions so far? Show of uh, high hands. And how, uh, so, great. So the rest of you, obviously, you have a, a, a good chance to see it, but it is quite, quite astonishing. Um, the second guest is Enrique Vargas. Um, Enrique is a theatre maker and anthropologist born in Colombia and was brought up on the, around the coffee and sugar plantations in Colombia, making labyrinths and uh, playing hide and seek with friends. And that inspired a lifetime, maybe obsession is a strong word, but uh, certainly a, a lifelong exploration of games and myth and um, the idea of, of the journey. And I first saw the work about 12 years ago in Barcelona. And uh, it was in fact the, the work we have here, Echo of the Shadow. It was in the uh, in the art gallery there, and, um, and actually, I'll also ask the same question: has, has anybody here had a chance to see Echo of the Shadow yet? That's like nearly everyone who's seen it so far. It's like fifty-four people a day. That's good. Um, and um, uh, uh, how many people are going to be seeing it later in the run and have tickets? How many people are going to just stand on the door and attempt to uh, get in a legal? Good work, good, good on you. Um, so um, those who've seen it uh, will say nothing about it, but. It is, uh, again, like Lynette's work, incredibly immersive and incredibly powerful. And Enrique, uh, having been brought up and uh, born and brought up in Colombia, then uh, trained around the world, including New York, and set up Sentidos in Barcelona, um, and has been making this work, uh, which actually is almost the opposite end of technology uh, in terms of... Uh, Rather than looking at stories that are up to 60,000 years old with equipment that was invented yesterday, um, it's going back into childhood and going back into who we are as people. So uh, thank you and welcome to both Enrique and Lynette. Welcome. Over the next uh, 45 minutes, I'm going to ask some questions. Um, I'm hoping you'll ask each other some questions and then there'll be a chance for everyone here Obviously not everyone here, that's ridiculous. Uh, for some people here to ask some questions. So uh, if you'd like to just sort that out between yourselves, fantastic. In the meantime, uh, I'd like to start by asking Lynette. Lynette, what was the moment when you realized uh, that, first of all, digital technology could take your art to places that nothing else could do? And, uh, and what, was, what, was that, what was that point, what was that moment? Uh, that's a great question, because it happened here. Um, I made Hold, which was a work some of you might have seen that was uh, video projections into glass bowls. And it showed first at the New South Wales Gallery, but it was commissioned by Ross Gibson for here. Um, and I'd been working with um, scientists, marine biologists, who were working on the Great Barrier Reef, and I was trying to create a work that was immersive in your mind, as opposed to immersive by being all around you. Um, that is, that you would fall into a state of such focus that you would forget about time. And that's what I saw happening on the reef. Scientists would get lost looking at a particular piece of coral. Same thing happened when I was with astronomers. They would get lost looking just in one part of the sky. And I wanted to create that sort of experience. And I thought I need to make a work which is incomplete without the visitor so that the work doesn't exist unless you are in it and um, so you had to catch this vision in glass bowls and uh, you know you conceive of a work and you imagine and then the audience always surprises you and I had all these beautiful shelves built and they were outside the space here in Acme but the 
they were to hold the bowls. But the bowls never came back to the shelves. So people would wait inside the space here. There were three projections of light that would fall down into the floor and you would walk in and catch that imagery in a bowl and find the focal point of this imagery that had all come from the Great Barrier Reef or microscopic imagery of corals or, or astronomical imagery of stars and you would hold that in your hands. And where I imagine people would stop looking at that and then take the bowls outside, that never happened. People would wait inside the work for someone to come in. And then they would hand the bowl to the person after them, which was the perfect metaphor for everything I was trying to say and I hadn't imagined it would happen, that you're literally passing this on. And there was a moment down here when a man came in at lunchtime and he was wearing working clothes. He had like fluoro jacket. He walked into this dark space. He saw everyone with the bowls and he said, is this bring your own bowl or what? <laughs> he said it very loudly. And I thought, that's incredible. Like he's spending this work man, spending his lunchtime coming into this gallery to look at this work, to catch some footage of corals in his hand. And there was no other... Uh, there was no other work I'd done that had had that effect. That's beautiful. And Enrique, um, you have been telling stories with using all the senses, using smell, hearing, sight, and, and the other, other senses are available. And uh, you, what was it that led you to believe that that was the way you needed to explore stories? Well, first I was just thinking now that we don't use five senses. Uh, we feel there's only one sense, but we need windows. Uh, yeah, one sense. Uh, perhaps what determined my, my whole life was uh, the games I played in childhood. Uh, that uh, Because I always wanted to go back to the sense of uh, amazement that I had as a child. And I always wondered how I could uh, record the, the amazement. Uh, estupor in Espanol, ¿cómo se dice estupor? Uh, amazement. <laughs> uh, and I always, my dream was to, for my own sanity, for my own self, I wanted to go back to, I didn't want to lose the right to be amazed. And uh, I felt that the world I was, that was around me was taking that away from us. So I decided to to go back to the same games. And my first game was hide and seek. I wanted to hide from my brother, older brother, making hiding under the coffee trees. And if you open the, the, the walls of a coffee tree, there's another one, another one, another one. And he could find it very easily because he was bigger and he would run faster. So I'd make different paths so, so he would lose, he would get lost. And I could uh, play secret games that I was not allowed to do, go to the dangerous creek and places like that. And so I would make labyrinths so he would get lost. And then, of course, I would get lost too. <laughs> and uh, when I was a teacher, when I was a student at the uh, theater school, I said to the teachers, uh, listen, I want to do, and I would, I would explain to the teachers what I want. And they, they said, that's not theater, and they get serious. There's nothing to do with theater. Go to the stage. And uh, so what determined me was the games of the child. And the urge, the need, rather, to encountered my to share the, the amazement I had and I've uh, both in both sets of work or both bodies of work the, the idea of either an immersive environment being one of the senses and or, or an immersive environment created by placing you outside somewhere that you are not uh, so either creating something around you that is there or placing you somewhere where you are not to get a sense of it. Um, and I'm, I'm, 
In terms of the, the virtual reality element and in terms of the idea of, of placing on land, uh, there is, of course, the fact that a lot of stories of land can only be told when you are in the place to which they relate. And men's business is men's business, women's business, women's business. And that actually that site-specific nature of a lot of indigenous um, stories, myths, uh, beliefs, and experiences are so important. How complex uh, what has it been to allow people to to t to allow you to tell their stories using technology that arguably isn't seen by them every day? Well, um, this is my third work with the Madu people, and um, and fortunately for me, they invited me to come and work with them. 2012, uh, the women painters invited me to come and film them and they wanted an immersive work made. Um, <clears throat> so what they wanted, as I understood, was something that would give you a sense of what it feels like to be in their country. Um, so I went on a camping trip. It was like a 10-day trip, seven days sleeping out under the stars in swags. Um, and they hunted and I filmed them with um, Pete Brundle, who lives here in Melbourne, who's worked with me on many things. Um, and but so then I came back to Melbourne actually to make that work and really had no idea if they would like that work because um, they listened to the audio but they didn't really see the immersive effect until we were in Fremantle Arts Centre um, with the work all set up and then they came in and they started singing and dancing. Then I knew that the work was good. Um, and I also then understood that this thing that they want, so the Maru are um, first, first generation, first contact people. So the women that I painted were all born in the desert, living in that desert before they had any contact with the West at all. And what they're wanting is to share what it feels like to be there. So I got to make that work, then another work. So I've had some training now. And um, the third work is this work with Neri, which the main part of that work doesn't happen on his country. Happens in Maralinga country. So that's a whole other thing. He was moving through a trade route. Britain took over an area in this country of 1,000 square kilometres. And there was sometimes one man in a four-wheel drive going through that area to make sure there were no Aboriginal people moving through it. Sometimes there were four four-wheel drives covering a, a million square kilometres. And there were trade routes moving through there. And Neary was moving as a young man through one of those trade routes. So those complications all had to be addressed. Um, so in VR is a powerful tool because it, it makes it places you inside the work. So when you experience it, you'll where where I place the camera is exactly where you'll be sitting. Um, it makes everything personal because you're now inside the film, you're in it, and you can't remove yourself from it. So Neri knew he was addressing you when he's talking to the camera. He kept asking me, "Where will the Europe people be?" I kept saying, where the camera is, is where the Europe people will be. So you want to say something, say it to the camera. And um, that's what we did. And so I think it's, the of all the immersive works we made, of those three, this is the best technology. It's the most compatible with that way of um, spatial, like seeing everything both from above and from on the ground and all around. So this was the perfect match. And Enrique, your, your work um, is very long in the preparation and in the ideas and the building of the spaces. And then it relies on the audience, the people to go into a space and, and uh, I, I don't want to give anything away, uh, but, but in effect to, to be led through or walk through a space through a series of experiences. How complex was it at first with audiences? Did they start off immediately doing what you expected them to do? Or, or actually, did you find you had to find new ways of coaxing people, leading them? Well, my first experience was, uh, as I was telling you, uh, as a kid creating 
uh, labyrinths. And uh, my, my cousins would come from the city with uh, electrical automobiles and with a bicycle and things like that, which were. And I wanted to do games that would, could be better than the ones they built. So I would work, I was by myself in the farm. So I would spend a week preparing the, 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 the show for, for Sunday. And uh, then they would come. And then there were other friends that would come, little kids like us, I was. And uh, so my training was sharing a game. Uh, we find that our strongest, strongest, whatever the word is, point was the fragility. The, most, the more fragile we were, the stronger we could be. In fact, uh, in our company, we have a person who's the director of fragility. Uh, and uh, yeah, mm. how to work for imaginants, how to work for people that want to be listened. So our work could be to listen, not to show something or to tell something, but to listen to those who come to the experience. How to understand that what people really listen to is not the words, by the, by the silences in between the words. Try as an experience now here, not just for a moment, try to not to hear my words, but to immerse yourself into the silences between one word and another. And uh, with anyone, because we, what we actually get into, into the silences, that's what's important. And fragility. And of course, there was another element just uh, that we work a lot with. I'm always afraid of the dark, and I'm afraid of getting lost. So my work is based in the dark and in being lost. <laughs> and in that work, Enrique, it seems that the stories that you tell, whether it's about the search for the shadow, whether that be the soul or your hope or your belief or your childhood or whatever that is to the person and or in Oraculous the 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 journey to from birth to death and and uh, that idea of going almost the Ariadne the the uh, Ariadne's thread the idea of the, uh, the the original labyrinth um the stories are really big and yet the simplicity of the telling of them is there and much of it is left to the audience and and how do you resist the urge to um, do more in order to try and get a response? Uh, how do you, how do you do you find yourself having to tr uh, to remind yourself and remind the whole company to to allow it to unfold rather than to present it? It's it's a paradox like everything. Um, like I I admire your work because it seems so 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 easy. <laughs> So simple. So uh, we we feel that the more naive the work, the more elementary, the more raw craftsmanship there is, the more interesting it could be, and the more intellectual, the more the 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 higher the technology. In this, uh, as, as a paradox, yeah. uh, mm, the more the more dangerous it could be. We feel that uh, mm, we don't talk about public; we talk about imaginants. We say, "How many imaginants are coming today?" <laughs> and uh, your work is ideal for an imaginant. Uh, so uh, I'm trying now, as I talk with you. Mm, not to talk here, but to, to listen. And uh, how to talk to listen, how to touch, not to manipulate, but to listen. When we touch someone, we, the other person knows if we're touching him or her to make her, or me, to, to, to make her move in some direction, or to listen to her or to him. So how to touch to listen, how to talk to listen, how to create listening instruments. That's the, that's the need to create uh, 
environmental tourism. And in terms of, again, the utterly deceptive seeming simplicity of, of, of the work, because actually, um, yes, as, as, you, as you rightly say, the, the permission and the right to lead somebody on that journey and also to tell a story is incredibly complex. And um, the idea that digital technology in any way will make things easier um, or will make great art. And, and I've always had this strong sense that no one has yet invented the digital platform that can turn shit art into great art. I mean, it's not, it doesn't exist. You, I, can, I can download. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I mean yes, yeah, you, you make ex astonishing work on, on VR um, and Björk made uh, an, a, an app-based piece of music and Brian Eno will make uh, uh, generative music that comes out of technology, but you also would have made great work using a wax cylinder or, or, or rocks or sticks or anything you had because that's what great artists do. And my question, uh, I've, uh, I've, no, I don't want question. Yes, I have. Um, it's, it's been how you use it very specifically to tell the truth, it seems, mm. and to strip away the artistry. So last night I watched um, Jean Cocteau's uh, La Bella La Bette with the soundtrack by. Philip Glass, and actually the uh, the soundtrack was wonderful, and and but the, but the film itself is just a piece of genius, and 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 almost like uh, Melier decades earlier is using the magic and the knowing magic of the moving image to play with things, whereas it seems that you use more technology to strip that away. Mm. I I just wonder I wonder I wonder again what is that your is it the storytelling that matters most? Well, we, Enrique and I began to have this conversation, I think. It's like, where does this come from? Difficult for you to talk to. Um, two artists who really work with the space between ourselves and um, whoever is there. So, um, um, But we did begin this conversation, which um, for me was like a very early childhood understanding of this world being a dream state that we are mutually dreaming. And that um, thought, once it had come into my mind, um, never shifted. So my work is the result of a thinking that um, I still live with, that mutually we are imagining things. We're imagining this world, and this world is the result of what we imagine. That can be you know, very practical, but it also can be very powerful. And I would say these te these technologies are in some way catching up with that as a possibility to show us. So VR, when I say it's the most immersive, what I want to say is it's the most close to you recalling something as though you dreamt it as opposed to you experienced it or you watched it. And that's what I'm interested in because I think our capacity to dream is completely linked to what this world will be tomorrow or next year or next, next decade. And now VR is being used interestingly for medical purposes there's people in Duke University who are using VR with paraplegics. So imagine dreaming this. You haven't used your legs for 13 years, but then in VR you appear to be using your legs. And there's robotic legs helping you. But when you look down in VR, your legs that have not wa walked for 13 years are moving, and your mind imagines, really, your legs are moving. And when you dream again, you dream your legs are moving and those people are getting muscle memory back and they're not yet walking but they have control over muscles that ha they have not had not control over for th a decade or more so that's where i'm heading always in my work it's this bigger idea and the work is a distillation of a possibility and, and it's interesting that this work um, came out of conversations around climate change and around big political conversations, I mean, big political situations. Um, so your storytelling is 
is about the world we live in, and but it's very much about uh, wanting to whether it's wanting to influence is it wanting to influence people or is it just acknowledging that actually there's a story you can tell that can't be told in any other way that will there is no other way of getting certain people to switch off their phones for 17 minutes and immerse yeah. themselves into this story. No, I mean I think um, um, this. There's channels, there's channels you can receive information through and one is the intellect and you can get knowledge and information that way. Whether that moves you to feel something or change something, I don't know and it's not my tool and it's not my expertise. But my, um, my, my skill, I think, is in using these technologies and saying, I'm going to open up a space in front of you. That's my goal. My goal is to open up space for you. Um, so you can perhaps have a different thought, have a different feeling than a different thought. And so the gratifying thing is that these works have been invited into these areas where, um, which are largely, you know, t talk fests, I would say, where the World Economic Forum, where decision makers, heads of state and heads of industry, and really the people who are making many of the decisions about our world and where we're going, are talking about things. And I now can bring my work into those spaces. And the surprising thing there for, um, for those people is that they find themselves lost, lost for a moment in a whole other place. They find themselves open to whole other emotions and they find themselves as knowledgeable as they are about an issue, having a completely different thought about it. And both of you in your work lead us as the audience to a place that we didn't know or couldn't have possibly imagined. Uh, I mean, the the, the, uh, the genuine immersion of, 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 first of all, Coral and actually the, the way that we're led through those spaces and, and the way that the music and the way that um, being in, in, the, uh, in that dome kind of takes us on a journey, puts us to a place we could never normally go. And in your work, Enrique, it takes us back to our childhood or it takes us to memory or takes us to through our own uh sort of re-acknowledgement in a way that 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 we we don't we didn't expect to do I, I remember enrique saying to me about 12 years ago when i was running a festival that um he said i i i'm always impressed jonathan you know where you're going you have a really strong sense of your 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 journey and your direction and that's very impressive and i said thank you he said yes it's very bad um you uh and, and, unless you are prepared to leave the path and, and and lose yourself how can you ever find anything that that you don't already know uh, thank you enrique um and uh and 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 so the fragility of the audience member the 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 fact that one does leave every bit of one's comfort zone in order to go into that space and trusts, you have to trust, but actually uh, it feels very much on the edge. And, and, and I, I'm intrigued by that in terms of um, immersive experiences in the world today. And I, I wonder from either of you, are, are there experiences out there that, that you have had with other theater or other visual arts or other um, music or sound, where do you find your inspirations? Where do you find the experiences where, where you find yourself transported beyond what even you could imagine? I knew the one thing I mustn't do is ask them both to ask, answer a question. Cause it no, um, <laughs> as you were talking about uh, the how your experience, uh, how technology could be used to, to go back to to situations that uh, you know for for capability or whatever you cannot uh, use. People don't have legs now, but they could back they could go back to to experiences which would, could make them feel themselves as if they could walk, and as they do that. And as they recuperate the same experience, they create a synaptical uh, circuit, which is uh, exactly s similar to the one they lost. Mm -hmm. So they create uh, the neurotransmitter, goes to the one neuron and another, 
and it, it goes back to creating that that system. So one thing that motivates me about that is uh, how a synaptical circuit which is lost could be recuperated. How we could go back to amazement. Uh, how we could work, go back to use the, the, the actual legs and be able to actually walk. Mm. Because that's my own situation now. I have a Parkinson, and uh, and I've been wondering for some time how could I recuperate a circuit that uh, is damaged? How could I do that? And that's a big question. Mm. In fact, one of the reasons, one of the things that amazes me, that interests me the most about uh, Melbourne, is that you have uh, neurologists and research centers here that uh, don't exist the same in Barcelona or in Paris or in London. Your research here is, is uh, very important. So the question has to do with how to differentiate experience from information. In an experience, you go to go through something, you first begin with poetics of curiosity, which is important for us, how to create curiosity. What is the poetics of curiosity? Then you go into a, a, a high point, and then there's a, the, the knowledge process and with the combination and then another synaptical moment begins. Mm. How, how, what, what is an experience? How in an information, when you, could, when you share an experience, you experience the process, and you're left with a, an experience. There's two things happening. You, you have the experience, and you're left with an experience. But when you receive information, it's not exactly the same. When you... When you do the information, uh, it could lead you into, a, into an experience, but not always happens like that. We forget that in schools. And uh, how did I get into this? <laughs> uh, it, uh, in the work, uh, it's very basic to understand how you're sharing the experience and how Important it is the curiosity, the poetics of curiosity, the the game, the play, the pleasure. So I would th I think what inspires me is um what I, where I get excited is uh, because I've often I'm using a technology when it's very new. I do it for exactly the reason you talked about, though it's the hardest time to work with a new technology because it's really likely that a lot of things can go wrong. But I really think that um, those, I love that moment where those new synaptic connections happen because you're having a new experience. And I think that leaves an indelible new memory. And so I work with technologies as they're emerging for that reason. So I can be putting that story attached to that moment What's exciting for me is when um, people experience a technology and imagine something with it that I haven't imagined. And um, um, that's happened with collisions. Um, we showed it in Oxford. Um, Jeff Skoll has a... Uh, he ha you know, Jeff Skoll has participant media, film, a lot of film. But he also does a lot of work supporting um, social entrepreneurs. And... Um, I was there mentoring and um, an Amazonian chief watched collisions. And he what he he's someone I know, but he watched it and he took off the headset and he said, My friend, I know exactly what we should do. Because this technology acts like medicine. It opens a portal, it transports you to another place. You are given a message and then you return. So come to the Amazon and we will do that. I would never have imagined that, but I'm going to do that. 
and, and what both of you are talking about is, is rites of passage, mm. about the idea of separation. You leave the everyday, you go on a journey and experience something new, and then you return back into the world changed, which is, which is the most ancient form of storytelling and, 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 and uh, getting lost and, uh, and play and, and ritual and everything we, we do. Now, I'm going to ask if people, anybody in the audience has a question. So uh, if we could have... We have, a, we have a roving mic, uh, which is going to come... Okay, while, the mic's ro while the mic is roving, do you both have a sense of the ephemeral and uh, the life cycle of the work that you create? Um, yeah. Uh, can, can I answer that? Yeah. It, um, uh, the first, uh, we, are, we do a show which is called Ariana Strait, which was done the first time in 1988. And uh, I'm surprised always when I talk with people in, in Brazil or in, or in France or different countries who saw um, Ariana Strait 30 years ago. And they talk to us as if it was yesterday. And they say, and they are excited, this, this happened, and this and this, and, and it's so fresh and so new. And the, the, the synaptical connection was so deep and so strong as a trauma could be, uh, that uh, they talk about it as something that just happened a few minutes ago. And they share the emotion and they share the, the depth of the experience. Mm, because of how, uh, how, Deep, you could go with the experience. Yes, the depth charge, the idea of something which is not wide, but it is so. And that's and, and that. Excuse me. No. I, I was just to say, uh, uh, and Lynette, do you have a sense of the way that the, the the fact that you're using technology that's changing every single day mm. does that affect the way you think about the work you're creating? I can't think about that yeah. because it means that you know it's it's. Um, there's like the 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 downside of working with technology is that um, someone would have to. Um, decide to keep um, uh, uh, like keep that technology current and that's very hard for people to do so occasionally I will re I'll go and visit a work again hold has been developed onward it's now five projection pieces instead of three evolution of fearlessness is been I can play much better clips in the in the interactive system but when I'm not around that won't happen so that's why I don't think about it. <laughs> Sorry about it. So I shouldn't have mentioned it. Um, so, so question from the... Hi. Um, my name's Anna. I'm studying directing at the VCA. And um, Enrique, I was very interested to hear what you were saying about fragility and um, how important that is in your work and that you have a fragility director um, working with you. And I was just wondering if you could um, talk further about what you mean by fragility and what role it plays in your performance work. Yes, that's homeopathy. It's uh, in Naples, uh, they talk about Virgilio, the poet as a magician. And in the streets, the taxi driver or somebody tells you about the miracles of uh, Virgilio. And uh, it's the one city that I find that where they feel that their poets are magicians. And uh, but they really feel that you, you reach the point in your poetical work where you become a magician, and people in the street that accept that. One of the magic uh, experiences that Virgilio created for the Neapolitans was the, the Castel del Bobo. Yes, Claudia knows it better than I do. Uh, he told them that they, they, they could build the castle on top of an egg. Then the city would be free of danger of the pirates. So they built Castel de Bobo, which is built on a castle, and uh, on, a, on, on, on an egg. And they said that if, they work, if the egg breaks, the city would fall to the ground. And uh, you go to see Castel de Bobo to, to imagine. <laughs> how that castle is sustained on the neck. And then we would say to ourselves, how could I understand Enrique, Richard, uh, Helen, 
Calhoun could help me understand that her power, her most powerful point in any of us, is the most fragile one. Uh, or is it in, in our physical strength? Where is, what, what, uh, how do we, how, how could that make sense? I ask. Another question? I, I had a comment that I forgot. Can I make it? Yes. Um, uh, if, um, being that uh, our interest, one of our interests here in uh, Melbourne is to mm, find persons who are interested into this uh, uh, experience of, uh, from some standpoint of neurology, uh, if anyone is uh, knows uh, research uh, persons who are going into this area, we would like to know about it. Or neurologists. I can say something about fragility. I um, ha work a lot with people who've um, experienced extreme trauma, but I don't work with them at the time they've experienced the trauma. And I, uh, but I think there's a relationship because. Um, something gets broken in a person and the way that person puts themselves back together, stress has changed them. Um, but the stress creates something that will be fragile but is in some ways more powerful than what was there before often. And I had an experience at the Glass Centre. I did a a residency in the glass, the National Glass Centre in the UK, and I, um, I became very unhappy there. I was in Sunderland and in Newcastle. It was grey. I was miserable. I was sad, and I started working with this particular glass, borosilicate glass, which we actually use for fibre optic cabling. It takes a tiny little bit of light, and it bounces that light around inside it so powerfully that it channels the light very strongly. And I was making glass needles and I was sticking them in a black felt curtain that I'd hung in my room. But when I pushed the little needle through, it would beam with light. And I asked the glass makers to help me perfect my needles. And we were making these beautiful needles and then they would put them back in the furnace once they were done. So I asked them, why do we have to put the, the needles back in the furnace? Because they look perfect to me. And they said, we have really stressed that glass by what we've done to it. We've changed it, we've manipulated it, we've, we've tortured it, we've pulled these points to it, and so we've made it fragile. And the only way to help it is to put it back into the flame. And that we did. Hi, um, my question's for Lynette. Um, thinking about what you said about immersive technology and dreaming, I have a five-year-old and I'm interested to know if you have an idea or if you've explored how immersive technology or VR works with children. No, I haven't. No. So I don't know. But children have a much greater capacity to imagine. In some ways they need VR. They don't need VR. We need VR. We're the ones who forget how to dream. We're the ones who forget our dreams. They don't. So, no, I don't know. I, I mean, I've, in a way, gone the other direction. I, Collision's first audience was going to be in a room which was largely men in their 60s. Um, and I wanted to create a collective dream for them. But I do think that the capacity to keep that state alive of dreaming can be taught and trained. I was in Malaysia two weeks ago. There's a There's a... There's a tribal group there called the Senoi Indians and their school for their children has always been dream school. They teach children lucid dreaming. So a child learns how to be unafraid in a dream and they bring that into their reality. And it's interesting, uh, there are a couple of companies who do play with this work. Uh, TPO in uh, Italy play with uh, immersive technology and projection and interactive work for children and young people. And there's a company in Holland whose names escape me uh, who who do virtual reality sets and but they do performances and uh, immersive journeys which which is aimed at 
at children. But you're right. It's it's. I mean, interestingly, they because they jump in so much more quickly. Actually, you, uh, there's almost less distance to go. Mm. It's 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 it almost seems more natural than it does for, um, as you say, a sixty-year-old to put on that headset and go on that mm. huge journey. So one uh, one more question from Ah no, I mean, there's two more. There's two. Uh, I was just wondering about um, how you get your message to the audience that you intend it to be for. Uh, exactly what you're saying before. So, uh, I mean, who needs to hear this story? People who are inherently against the message that you're trying to portray. So how do you re reach those people? Uh, you. you go. Yes. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a story written, it's called The Small, the, the Small Organon by Don Bertoldo Brecht. Don Bertoldo? Don Bertoldo Brecht. Bert he says, when you do a, a, a play, you should never think of giving a message. Uh, the more you try to give the message, the more mistaken you could be. He was a paradox, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he says, if you want to give a message, just make a speech or write an essay, but don't try to make a message because you lose the sense of, of the play, of the game, of the entertainment. Uh, Italo Calvino says the same thing in his uh, essay on lightness. He says uh, he tried all his life to give a message, to create a sense of history, of mission to the people, but the more he tried, the farther away he... he, 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 he they were mistaken he was. And he says that in his last years of life, his main, main effort was to make the work lighter, more fragile. And the more fragile he was, the lighter he was, the more effective he could be. So how to get away from the idea that we have to give a message? Because we become ideological, and we begin to push ideology. And that's... That's a violation. Yeah, I I think um, so. I, I I totally agree. I um I don't uh, for years I would go to different things. People would say to me, "Yeah, but where's the call to if this is if this film Coral is about um, climate change and ocean acidification? Where's the call to action? There's no call to action. It's just an immersive experience of being on a reef at night, and none of my work has that." in it because that's for activists you know um art is something else art is opening a space inside you and if that space opens inside you and you think a different thought than the thought you had before the work that's the work i, I would say probably the most fundamental quality inside my work is the sense of humility to imagine not that this is a person i have to you know, convince of a different point of view, but a person that the work is in discussion with who may have a completely amazing response to it. And um, that place of humility means you're never in the space of giving a speech to anyone. And the benefit of that is my work has now been invited to exactly the places where it can make an impact. Did you, did you try? Did you hear her silences? Were you able to? What, what, what do you get the most uh, emotion from her silences or from her words? <laughs> so the leading, and there was one more question. Uh, I apologise because I feel like this question is maybe a little exclusive of Enrique because it relates to technology and I, I understand that you um, try to remove your work um, from that idea of technology a little bit but I mean feel free to, to jump in but it, I guess spontaneity cannot be improvised yeah <laughs> um, so I guess uh, my question is more for Lynette and I'm a, a bit of a futurist science sort of um, fanatic so 
for me, I'm wondering, you know, there's probably a technology out there that hasn't even been thought of or invented or perfected yet that um, you could be telling stories on in the next five years, ten years. And I'm just wondering if uh, there's there's any sort of technology or any different developments that are on the horizon that are catching your imagination that maybe at some point might be the place where you could tell a story or... Um... I so I've never uh, I I've never been taken up just by the technology. Oh, the mm-hmm. story always comes first for me, and then yeah. I think, oh, that's the fit. You know, there's a lot of people now looking at augmented reality. I did an augmented reality work in 2011. Katrina commissioned it, um, um, but it was right for that piece. So I do think um, I I really do think though. There's something in this AR, VR world, but particularly in the immersive state of virtual reality that I will pursue, which is around what I talked about. What is a capacity? It was, it was in the text that people were saying about Enrique's work. Find something in ourselves that we didn't know was there. Activate something that actually is there, which is our human potential. Um, and I do think we have, we have created something here that is enabling us to trigger a potential that most of us have lost. But that when that Amazonian looks at it, he knows exactly what it is, because he hasn't lost it at all. Yeah, the, the Maya kitchen, the Maya kitchen Indians in Central America and Mexico, there were 30, 33, 35 uh, communities of Mayas. One of them, the ones in Chiapas, are called the Tojo Lavares. The Tojo Lavares, they call themselves the listeners. And they cannot say, uh, I touched the tree. They, they say, the tree touched me. Mm. They say, they don't say, we go mm, coffee. They say, or potatoes. Or they say, the potatoes are mm, mm, growing, uh, I am, the potatoes are growing me. And we say, but that makes no sense. Uh, they always talk subject to subject, not object to subject, or subject to object. Uh, the cards would hate them. Mm. In our uh, Indian communities, uh, we have the highest, the most developed uh, sense of Humanity, humanness, richness that we could have. It's going to the roots, going to the seeds, going to what's not been squashed. I think we unfortunately do need to come to an end. Um, well, uh, the extraordinary thing about festivals and about Moments like this is the diversity of people who come together and create work and the resonances you see between them that even if you've been thinking about something for, for a year and a half, you can have no idea uh, the resonances and the surprises that will happen. I am constantly amazed. Uh, the lengths to which people will go and the, and, and the amount of work people will do to create a single moment of beauty. And I see that in both of... of the works that and the work that you both create. Um, I'm also incredibly conscious that at a time when I feel like I'm surrounded by a million screens and a million smells and a million experiences, um, again, the thing that seems to unite the work that both of you create is that the person experiencing it uh, becomes massive. You feel like actually the world revolves around you, not the other way around for a short period of time, that for a period of time you're at the absolute centre. I mean, that's why we're talking about immersion, but that, that rare experience that it allows you to look inwards uh, to yourself and have a single complex set of influences that can lead you on a journey, and journeys that are dealt with, with sensitive, with fragility, with empathy, uh, stories that need to be told. And so I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for 
the astonishing work you both create, um, but also thank you for your openness, your honesty, um, your uh, the generosity and of spirits with which you both pass through the world. Um, and thank you so much for being here. And thank you very much, Katrina, and everybody here at Acme. Uh, it's it's the most brilliant building uh, to collaborate with and the most fabulous group of people to collaborate with uh, in one of the great cities in the world. And I, I hope you both have a fantastic time here. We're here, but thank you both very much for that. Thank you, everyone. Thank for you. Your questions. Thanks, Jonathan. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website. <laughs>